If you have a Bible with you, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I say to you, hear the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come again and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that we would um, see this story of the Magi maybe with new eyes. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're, this is part three. It's the third week of Advent and we are talking about trauma in many ways. See, one of the things I like about Christmas, or at least that I like about preaching during Christmas time and Advent, is basically sort of deconstructing the narratives or deconstructing the stories that we have in our head. It, it, or desanitizing them may be a better word. In other words, when w- many of us, when we think of Christmas, it's sort of this sanitized version. Everything's clean, the manger is clean, Herod, you know, Herod doesn't even come up, right? It's just the Magi suddenly show up from nowhere. So this morning, in some many ways, I want to desanitize the story of the Magi. In other words, the story of the Magi is much more interesting, I think, and much more helpful when you look at it as it really is, rather than just thinking, okay, these guys just saw a star and they followed it straight to the manger. That didn't happen. You see, one of the reasons, I, if you have been here, we're looking at Advent through the lens of trauma, because when you look at what really happened around the story of the birth of Jesus, it was very raw, it was very gritty, and it, in many ways it was just riddled and full of trauma or traumatizing experience, and that can help us learn both about how we can deal with trauma, but also it helps us, of course, understand Jesus better. So I want to open with a question this morning. The question is basically this, what do you know, or how do, what do you understand about the dynamics of abuse? Now, there are therapists in this room, I know, who could give you a much broader definition, or a much more narrow definition, or a much more nuanced definition, or even a much more uh, nuanced view of how it works. But I want you to do this, just for my sake. Imagine a family... And imagine a family where everything in that family is unpredictable because of the father. 
He brings home a paycheck. That, that's great. You know, like the kids get to eat on one hand. On the other hand, he's, he's completely unpredictable. Like in my family, that is my family. I can remember a story very vividly where my mother made peas one night. And somehow we went from, why did you make peas, to my mother being in the hospital. Over peas. Like, when you grow up in an environment where everything is sort of unpredictable, what do you do? You learn to keep your head down. You learn to shut up. You learn to comply. You learn not to make waves. And you don't like it when other people do either, right? You learn that if I can just maintain the status quo, I might survive. And when other people come around that sort of rock it, you get nervous with them too. I remember when I was growing up, there was a pastor who used to visit our house. My family didn't go to church. You've heard me tell stories probably about Pastor Powell. He used to come to our house, nicest guy in the world. And I can remember him trying to tell my parents about Jesus, and I would always be nervous. Not that he would get hurt, but I would wonder, what's it going to be like when he leaves? What's going to happen when he leaves? Is my stepfather going to be angry at something he heard? Because there's only about four places where he's going to take it out. Tommy, Amy, Katie, and Emily, right? And what's going to happen? When you grow up in that kind of environment, it changes the way you approach everything. Right? And the thing is, that happens not only in families, it happens in churches. It could happen here. Probably the most popular podcast in the United States right now is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's about an abusive leadership situation. It can happen in churches. It can happen in governments. Right? Any time a government makes you follow capricious rules, any time a government sort of uh, forces you to comply with things, any time a government punishes anyone who speaks up, that is sort of along the, the dynamics of abusive relationship. And the government I have in mind today is the government that was in place at the time of Jesus' birth. Did you notice it says that when the Magi entered, Herod and all Jerusalem was disturbed. Who is Herod? Well, Herod, on one hand, he brought home a paycheck, if you will. He was a good guy. He was called Herod the Great because Herod had restored the temple in Israel to better than its original beauty. He was a great architect, he was a great planner, he he was great at raising money. And so if you wanted to, to look good, Herod was your guy. On the other hand... He was a tyrannical dictator. (laughs) If you spoke up against him, simply he would kill you. And he was ruthless, and he eliminated all challengers to the throne, including people in his own family. So if you grew up in Herod's house, what would you do? Probably keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, and learn to work around the system. Herod is the one who is in charge when Jesus is born. And so last week we looked at Joseph and the centrality of Joseph and everything that happened around there and and all the tension and trauma and drama around the story with Joseph. Well, today, obviously, we're going to look at the Magi and see what happens. And I hope you find it to be much more interesting than the real story or the one we hear on TV all the time. We're going to get three things today. We're going to look at the wisdom of the Magi. We're going to look at the foolishness of Herod. And we're going to look at the joy of finding. Okay, The wisdom of the Magi the foolishness of Herod, and finally the joy of finding. So the first two questions come up immediately when you start thinking about the Magi. And the two questions basically are, who are they? And how did they know to look for Jesus? Right? If you, if you were just watching you know, the little drummer boy, for example, 
You have no idea. Where did these guys, how do these guys have any idea that that star would lead to this person? Well, when you start looking at the Bible, it actually becomes a little bit more clear. So who were the Magi? Well, the Magi were the official religion of Babylon. And in the 7th century, they were basically declared to be the official religion of Babylon. They were soothsayers. They were dreamers. They were uh, people who interpreted dreams. They were magicians. All of that sort of stuff, that sort of astrological stuff, that's what they were in charge of. Now, what's interesting is in the 6th century B.C., 100 years later... That's when Israel was taken into exile into Babylon. And so when basically Babylon went to, to Jerusalem, took the brightest and the best of the children or the teenagers and brought them to Babylon and taught them all the wisdom of Babylon. And if you remember, the most famous of those kids was a guy named Daniel. And so you get to the book of Daniel and what you see in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, is basically this, is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's He's troubled by it, and he calls all of his soothsayers, all of his magi together, and says, interpret this dream for me. And none of them can interpret the dream for him. And so he says, okay, how do, how do tyrants deal with people like that? Off with their heads. Kill them all. And Daniel steps up and says, bup, 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 bup. can I try? Which is pretty brave. Daniel says, can I try? Daniel steps up, and he actually interprets the dream. And what is Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel is this. Daniel chapter 2, verses 40, say 46 through 48. He says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel was made, Daniel, one of the greatest prophets that we know, one of the most prolific guys, Daniel was made chief of all the wise men in Babylon. Now, what do you suppose Daniel taught the wise men of Babylon? No doubt he taught them about Yahweh. No doubt he taught them about the coming Messiah, the book he wrote. I imagine he taught, told them about the things that he wrote in his book, said that about 470 years from now, the king of the Jews will arrive, the Jewish Messiah. He might have taught them about Balaam's oracle, right? In Numbers chapter 24, Balaam says this, Balaam it is basically an oracle that was hired to curse Israel, but he blessed them instead. And the last thing he says is, I see him, behold, but not now, behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Morab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So, what happens? Do you, do you think he taught them those things? Do you think he taught them the Hebrew Bible? I would think we'd be foolish to believe he didn't teach them those things. And so 470 years later, at the exact time Daniel said that Messiah will come, they see a huge star in the sky. And most people think, because we can look back and trace back those things, that it was actually a convergence of Jupiter and Saturn that came together that made it appear to be this huge star. And by the way, Jupiter represents royalty, and Saturn had come to represent the Jewish people. And so they see this happen, and they think, wow, we should go find this king of the Jews. That's the sign. Daniel said it was going to happen on, on this day, if you will. And when that shows up, that happens, and they move out. Now, what didn't happen is they didn't follow the star to Jerusalem. 
It was just a sign that they should. In other words, they saw the sign, and if you, are, if you see the sign and you want to find the king of the Jews, where would you go? Just logically. You would go to Jerusalem. That's where the, the, Jew, the king of the Jews, they would expect, would live. And so they headed off to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, you know the phrase like when you're in baseball or something and someone swings and misses and they're like, man, he missed that thing by a mile. Well, they, they missed Jesus by five miles. I imagine they went right by him. And they go into Jerusalem. And they go into Jerusalem and basically start looking for this one who is born king of the Jews. Notice what it says. It says, now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, what do we know about the wise men just from those couple of verses? One, we know that they're wise because they ask for directions. Right, men? They ask for directions. They don't know. They, they just show up. But because in, at the end of the day, they have these prophecies that may be relatively vague. They've seen the star. They've come to Jerusalem. And notice, they don't go straight to Herod. They just start asking people in the street. They expect that people are going to know about this. How could all Jerusalem not know that the king of Jews, the Jews has been born, that the one that, is, that they've waited for is now here? And they, so they just ask. And people, I don't, people shrug their shoulders. They don't, I don't know. They, but they were wise. But they were also brave. And how do we know they're brave? It's because by this time, Babylon had become Parth, the, the Parthian kingdom. And not too long before the Magi arrived, the Parthians were in charge of Jerusalem. And the Romans had kicked them out and installed Herod as the king of Judea. And so now you have the, the, the priests of the, the Parthian king coming into the streets of Jerusalem, and they would have probably had armed guards with them. Most people, I don't know any scholar that believes there were three wise men, by the way. They, the, the, whoever the wise men were, they brought three gifts. Most people believe that it was a huge retinue. It could have been up to 90 people. It might have, there were probably soldiers with them to guard. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were incredibly expensive gifts. They would have needed someone to, to pull guard while they were crossing the desert, while they were entering Jerusalem. And so what is Jerusalem supposed to think when they see these, these very fancy guys in turbans and their retinue entering with soldiers and guards? You can imagine they would be a little nervous. But also what that tells us is that the Magi were more concerned about finding the king of the Jews than they were about their own lives. Because they, they could have easily provoked someone like Herod to kill them. And the last thing is basically to notice is that they asked for the one who had been born king. In other words, they didn't come and say, we're looking for the one who has born who will someday become king. We're looking for the one who has been born king right now. And if you ever read that Charles Spurgeon, Judy and I read Charles Spurgeon at night usually, he makes this great point that this Jesus could be the only person ever who was born a king. Most people who become king, they're born a prince and then they become a king eventually. The magi come in and they say, we want to, find, we want to see the baby who is king right now. And Herod was troubled. So the Magi, they come in with all of their wisdom and they're looking for the king of the Jews and they were brave and that troubles Herod. And not only does that trouble Herod, but something even bigger troubles Herod. Notice what Herod's response 
in verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men, secretly ascertained for them what time the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him too. Well, why is Herod so troubled? Why does Herod, Herod feel so threatened? Now, secular scholars read the Bible too, and they would say that Herod's troubled because of this whole Parthian threat. That he is troubled because he thinks, wow, Rome just kicked these guys out and they made me the king and now they're coming back to take the place over, which means if they win, then I'm going to be out as king. That's what secular scholars say. We know without a shadow of a doubt that that is not the thing that troubled Herod. And how do we know that that's not what troubled Herod? Because when, when Herod was troubled, he didn't say, Chief priests and scribes, come to me. Tell me, how is it that the Parthians are entering? Or tell me, is it, is it the king of the, of the Parthians that I have to worry about? He doesn't say that. He's not, he's not frantic. He doesn't call together all of his advisors and all of his priests and all of his scribes and ask about the Parthians or the Romans or the Medes or anyone else. He asks them about the baby. That is the threat to Herod, this baby who was born king of the Jews. Why is he the threat? Maybe, what if they are right? What if they're right? That's going to mean a different, something big and different for Herod, who, by the way, was not Jewish. What does he do? Why, we, we know he's troubled basically in some ways for the same reason that we are. What, was, what reason was Herod threatened that would be the same reasons that we are? Herod is threatened by Jesus because Jesus threatens his sovereignty and his control. I guarantee you, every one of you, including me, are, is a control freak at some level. And with some things. Maybe not all things, maybe not everything, but there are some areas of your life, man, that you think, i got to control this right here, or this is my thing, don't anyone touch it. Herod's thing happened to be all of Judea. And Jesus came as a threat to that. And the problem with Jesus, if he's the true king, that basically leaves you only three options. Right? What are the options if Jesus is the king for the things that you control? Basically, you can try and avoid him. But you know that only lasts so long because Jesus is pretty pesky. Herod couldn't avoid this child. If this child was who he said he was, he would grow up and he would threaten Herod's reign. It's as simple as that. So, okay, you can't avoid him. So what's the other option? Well, maybe I find him and submit to him. Maybe I find him and say, hey, you know, you are the king of the Jews. What do you want me to do? The other option, of course, is just to kill him. So, so you can either avoid him. That doesn't necessarily work. You can try and kill him. Find out that doesn't really work either. Or you submit to him. You basically give over your throne to him. You basically give over all the things that, that, over which you have control to him. And you say, I want you to be the one who tells me what to do, not me to be the one who tells you what to do. And the interesting thing is that if you aren't like Herod, and, and there's a good chance you're like the people. In other words, remember it says Herod and all the people were troubled. That in other words, oftentimes if you're not 
afraid of losing control of something. Conversely, you're often control of losing, afraid of losing that which controls you. Right? An easy example would be an addict, right? Someone who's addicted to something. That, that thing that, to which they're addicted controls them, and they're, they're worried about losing it. And if Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to take all these things, well, you're going to lose those things that control you if you let Jesus control you. You're going to give up control if you give Jesus control. Honestly, that is threatening. I understand that threat. Am I going to have open palms when I approach him, or am I going to hold on when I approach him? Well, Jesus basically doesn't give us any choice but to do something. In other words, if you can't avoid Jesus, then Jesus says, let me paraphrase, either love me or hate me, but just don't tolerate me. Either love me or hate me, but just don't avoid me. Like, at least be honest, right? Either, either submit to me and embrace me and let me take away your sins, let me take away your shame, let me take away your guilt, let me redeem your trauma, let me do all these things for you, or hate me. But don't just go through life acting as if I don't exist. That would be, I think, what Jesus says. That's a summary of what the whole gospel message is in many ways. And so... Basically, the baby was Messiah, that all the people in Israel were basically, they, they were in this position of being damned if they do and damned if they don't. Right? Because if, this, if the, this baby had been born king, if he was Messiah, came, and they rejected him, then basically they'd be enemies of God. But that's what they were rejecting. They were rejecting God's salvation. On the other hand, if they accepted him, then basically they faced conflict, they faced losing everything that was comfortable about their lives. You see, one of the interesting things about trauma and abuse is it becomes comfortable to you and it becomes normal to you and you would rather actually have that than something that was free and not that norm. And so what they basically they are nervous about is because this, they're in this traumatic, abusive relationship with Herod, but it's their traumatic, abusive relationship with Herod. And they're used to it. And some people have learned how to thrive in it. And some people have learned how to keep their head down. And if this baby Jesus is born the king, he might topple that whole cart. They're nervous about that. And they should be, because that's exactly what's going to happen with this baby Jesus. And also, just as a side note, it's always interested me. Notice in verse 5, it says, in verse 4, it says, He assembled the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, etc., etc. Those two verses have always interested me and bothered me at some level, because these are the chief scribes and the priests. These are the preachers. And the, the Magi have missed Jesus by five miles, and Herod goes to the, chief, to the preachers and says, where is the Messiah to be born? And they, don't, they know their Bible. They're like, oh, Bethlehem, They're five miles down the hill there. Why don't they go? Why don't they say, wow, and they just go? Why don't they get up and go? Why aren't they excited about it? It's because they know their Bibles, but they don't know Jesus. They know their Bibles, but they don't care about Messiah. They know their Bible. The, knowing their Bible has become the thing. And, and in the context, and in the course of knowing their Bible, they've missed the whole point of the Bible. The whole point of, the, like, think about the solid gold that they had. Where is Messiah right now? Poof, Bethlehem. How, you know that, but you're not going to Bethlehem? You know that, that he's right, he's five miles away. Everything that supposedly you hoped and dreamed for, everything that supposedly you're preaching to my people Israel is five miles away. 
and it means nothing to you. You can know your Bible and not know God whatsoever. I know a lot of people like that, by the way. So heading, so, so we see the, the wisdom of, of the Magi, and you see the foolishness of Herod, is that he's not embracing this. He, he wants to basically find this baby so he can kill them, we find out. So what about the joy of finding? Notice what Herod, in verse 7, he tells them. He's, Herod, Herod, some of the wise men secretly and ascertained for them from what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod summons the Magi. What's he do? He tells them about Bethlehem. He sends them to Bethlehem. And then he lies to them. And he basically says, hey, you guys go find this baby. And then come back and tell me if it's true that I may worship him too. Now why does he do that instead of just send a bunch of soldiers down there to, to find all the babies and kill them right then? Well, because if, if in the off chance that what they're saying is not true, why draw attention to the situation? Why, why send soldiers down to Bethlehem? Why make be, people into martyrs when they don't have to be? He's trying to be wise, right? He didn't get to be a tyrant because he's dumb. And so he says, you guys go down and find the baby and come back and worship me. I mean, and on top of everything else, it was only five miles away. If he needed to send soldiers, he could send them down pretty quickly. And basically, I think... He, he expected that the Magi would come tell him. He expected that, the, who, what's not to like about me, Herod? <laughs> Why wouldn't they want to come and tell me about this baby, especially if I want to worship him? And they didn't do that, and we're going to find out that has huge repercussions next week. Instead, they, when it says, when they saw the star, the star rises. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. Now when they saw the star, and they saw where it was going, and they found the child, they, received, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Right? They, they rejoiced with joy that could not be contained. Why did they rejoice so much? I think the answer is pretty simple, is because they were really looking. They were really looking for the Messiah, and they found him. It'd be one thing if they just happened upon him. But imagine you had traveled across the known world to find something. You, you'd risked everything. You had risked hoping that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah was there and you were actually seeking him diligently and you were looking for him. You risked everything. Maybe you took all of your wealth with you and when you see that it's happening, what do you do? You, you rejoice. That's exactly what they did. And when you look at the... the New Testament, what do you hear Jesus say over and over? You hear it in the Old Testament too, by the way. God says it. Seek me and you will what? He didn't say seek me and you know what? I may or may not show up. He didn't say seek me and I'm going to play hide and seek your whole life from you. Now, by the way, it feels like that sometimes. But he says seek me and you will find me. Remember, James says, draw near to God and he'll do what? 
people draw near to you. Right? I, I believe in grace, by the way, and I believe that God always initiates with sinners. But I also believe that He rewards those who seek Him. That basically God initiated with them. How did God initiate with them? He initiated with them through the prophets, through Daniel, through this general revelation of the star, and they responded to that initiative with worship. Do you ever hear that any place? God initiates and we respond. God initiates, we respond. That is basically the definition of worship. And that's what it says that the Magi did. God initiated with them, and they sought him and responded, and they found him. And finding him, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And basically, how did they respond? Very specifically, look at um, verse 11. It says, they fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first thing they did was they submitted to him. They worshipped him. Now, secular scholars would say they were just bowing down and showing homage like they would do to any king. Matthew doesn't let us believe that. Matthew says, no, uh, uh, uh. They didn't just bow homage to him. He he writes literally, they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't take a knee. They didn't just, you know, do the whole thing. They fell down and worshipped him because they were in awe. The other thing they did was they gave. Right? The natural response to the gospel and the natural response to your heart being changed, the natural response to being in the presence of God is to give. It says they offered their gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a lot of people make these into sort of allegories that gold stands for royalty and frankincense stands for worship and myrrh stands for death. And these all point to Jesus in a different way. That may or may not be true, or it may just be that they brought the things that were the most valuable to them, because those three things were the most valuable things in the ancient world at the time. They brought the most valuable things they have, and they offered them to Messiah. That when we are changed by the gospel, when we encountered the gospel, normally our natural response is to give. Here's, here's everything I have. The thing that, that Herod couldn't do, the thing that the people of Jerusalem couldn't do, these Gentiles from the east couldn't help but doing. That's how you know it's grace. That's how you know it's gospel when your response is like that. And sometimes the thing that we offer Jesus that is most valuable to us, by the way, is not always money. It's not always our stuff. Sometimes the things that we offer Jesus that are most valuable to us are our sins, the things that we hold on to, the, the shame and the guilt that we just walk around with and say, man, this is my precious, right? This shame that I've had since I was eight years old, and I'm just going to hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it. And when you come into the presence of Jesus, the natural reaction, I hope, is to say, Jesus, you can have this too. You can have my trauma too. You can have my abuse too. All those things that weren't my fault, take those please. All of these things, take them from me please. Jesus, I want to give them to you. That is also an act of worship. Right? We're so self-righteous, we think, oh, you know, I, if, I, if I do those things, right, it'll just be like, he's just, I, I didn't pay for them myself. Right? The whole point of the gospel is you can't pay for it yourself. Give it to him. Because ultimately he have, will pay for them and he has already paid for them. Because you see this baby that's in this probably dirty house with this dirty mom and a dirty dad with dirty animals ultimately will go to a dirty cross to save you from your dirty sins. To wash you clean and wash you whiter than snow. And, you know, this whole thing, I'll close with this. 
the, the image that came to my mind as I was thinking about the Magi showing up at the house of Jesus, right? This, this retinue of, of important people, you know, with the turbans and the jewelry and the camels and the, the guards and them showing up. It reminded me of the commercials when I was a kid of Publishers Clearinghouse. Right? If you're too young, you might not remember. Because when I was young, right, you would get they basically would the you get these envelopes in the mail, and it would be Publishers Clearinghouse. And I think you could buy magazines, right? And you say, oh, I want to buy a Boy's Life and a Sports Illustrated, and please register me for the Publishers Clearinghouse Million Dollar Giveaway. And once a year, remember Ed McMahon, very famous celebrity, he would show up at someone's house. And he would show up at their house, and there would be vans, and there would be tons of people, and there would be reporters, and they had the check that was like six feet long that he was going to bring to their house. And he'd knock on the door, and some lady would be standing there with curlers and a cigarette. And he'd say, you are the winner of this year's publisher clearings house sweepstakes, a million dollars! And she would drop her cigarette, and she would start shaking, Whoa, screaming! Now imagine you were Ed McMahon... And you were all thinking you were all that. And you go up to this house that you think is going to have the lady with the cigarette and the curlers. And you knock on the door. Mary opens and you see behind her the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The one who is more beautiful and better than anything you could ever imagine. Think about that. What would it be like? It's as if the people with the most money and the most to give showed up and instead of being the ones who actually gave, they are the ones who received. That the Magi thought they were the ones who were bringing gifts when in fact the Magi were the ones who that day received the greatest of all gifts. They entered in, I assume, a relationship with this baby Messiah who would grow up to be Lord and Savior of all. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that we would be um, willing to give up that which is precious to us. Whether it's some, for some of us it might be our money, for some of us it might be our stuff, for some of us it might be control, and for others it might be our guilt and our shame. Enable us, please, open our eyes to give that stuff up, to see the joy on the other side of that door. The joy on the other side of that door, who is Jesus, waiting to receive all those who seek him. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.